Or if you have your Bible, I would ask you to open it to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John. We are beginning here a journey together. And I don't think there is a better place for us as a church to start than the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is written by the most intimate disciple to Jesus Christ, the Apostle. Today we want to look at the introduction to this book. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 18 will be the focus of our morning, which is, uh, it will be a very much doctrinal sermon. So I ask you to bear with me because we're going to dive into deep truths this morning. This gospel is a good point to start. We always say to people who come to Christ to start with the gospel of John. Because it's simple, and yet it is immensely profound. The reason why the Gospel of John is so popular is because of its simple language, spiritual focus, going to the core of what is essential. Here we see the peak of the New Testament theology, together with the letter of Romans. And compared to the other Gospels, this, the other Gospel gives you a broader view of Christ's ministry. Here we come... To an intimate portrait and closer portrait of who Jesus is. We see an emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit. And the goal, as we will see, is to understand who Jesus is. And so with these thoughts, let us read the Word of God this morning. Gospel of John, verses, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Hear now the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not overtake it. There was a man having been sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. So that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. There was the tr true light, which coming into the world enlightens everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has been ahead of me, for He existed before me. For of His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Thus far the reading of God's Word. May God bless the meditation upon His Word this morning. Time magazine once asked this question. Who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? Was he 
just coming with a gentle message or was he starting a revolution? Did Jesus know that his uh, entire ministry would have ended in a death upon a cross? Did he view himself as the promised Messiah, the Savior promised in the Old Testament? Did he understood himself to be both God and man? These are indeed important questions that we must wrestle with to find an answer. I know we live in a culture where people are very hesitant about uh, saying absolute statements, absolute truth, or uh, the, the reality of what true is. Many want to say that Jesus was just a good teacher, perhaps a philosopher or a good man, or he was just another prophet. Friends, the first words of the Gospel of John this morning answer those vital questions upon which it verged your entire existence. Who is Jesus and why did he come to earth? And what we see here is that Jesus is three things. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. And Jesus is a savior. This book of John that we are diving to start our journey together can be divided in two parts. All the way to chapter 12, we have a focus on these miracles that Jesus does. Miracles that are supposed to be a sign about who Jesus is. They're supposed to tell you who the nature of Jesus. And then later, the second part of the book, Jesus goes to the upper room with the disciples Chapter 13, all the way to uh, the death and resurrection. We see that at the end of the entire Gospel of John, the goal of John is this. John 20, verse 31. The goal of this Gospel is this, friends. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. See? The goal of this book is for you to understand the identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life. Which means the purpose is purely evangelistic. To bring you to an understanding of Christ's identity. And then to stir up faith in you. Who do you say that I am? Says Jesus. So you see here that already in this introduction. This verse 18 verses. We have a dense introduction to the goal of Jesus you got to see Jesus as the Messiah, God, man, and Savior, and stir up you to believe for eternal life. And so, when you want to defend the, the fact that Jesus is God, you go to the Gospel of John. And we see here that He is both human and divine. He has one person, but two natures, human and divine. And major themes of the Gospel are already with us in these first 18 verses. Which talks about light, darkness, the flesh, the world, the spirits. You see, when we look at this concept, the risk for us is to go to extra biblical lens to figure out what those means. But we must not do as we will see. The, 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 the goal of John here in these verses is to, to give you a roadmap to where he's headed. And verse 14 is the key over here. Verse 14 says, the word became flesh. Which means the word which was God has now been made flesh. 
the significance of what we call the incarnation. That in Christ, God has come to earth. That Jesus he is the creator. He is God. But also that he became a man to make those who receive him into a new creation. The creator comes to bring new spiritual creation. That is the key of these first 18 verses. Jesus, God, man, and Savior. Let us first look at the fact that Jesus is God. And you have it there. Verses 1 to 3 of our text. Jesus is the creating word. The word, which as we will see in following verses, is Christ. Existed before everything. And created everything that exists. This is in the beginning. The uncreated creator is Jesus Christ. That's what John wants you to see. He starts with the words in the beginning. Which means it's pointing you back at creation. Unlike all the gospels of Luke or Matthew. You know that the gospel starts with genealogies. Whether going back to Adam or going back to Abraham. No. John wants to go to Creation to eternity pass to this week we could call it the Genesis 1-1 of the New Testament is before our eyes. What John wants you to see by those words is that Jesus is continuing the creation story of Genesis 1. That same word that started the Old Testament where life, light, let there be light and the word darkness, right? Is now coming again, but this time to inaugurate a different type of creation. A spiritual creation, a new creation. The epistle of John, 1 John 1.1 starts in the same way. That which was from the beginning. The origin, the, the, the first point in time in the creative process. We hear in, in John 1.1 that... In the beginning was the word. And that was means that he already existed. Even before creation. Before time was ever existed. Jesus already existed. The word. It doesn't say in the beginning God. Like Genesis 1.1. In, in the beginning the word. The spoken word. And, and as I said we must avoid getting caught into philosophy and Various speculation over the word logos here. In the beginning the words. We must keep the biblical context of Genesis chapter 1 here. Where you have the voice of God saying let there be. And he speaks things into existence. This divine communication. The creative power of the word of God. Referring to as we see from following verses to Jesus. Verse 14. He became flesh. Jesus is the personified expression of the word of God. Beyond mere words, this word is a person. We must understand the word as the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. He, we hear from verses 2 and 3, was with God. This entire passage is full of the verb to be. Was, was, was. Why? Because we are going to the essence of who Jesus is here. We want to see that he already existed with God. Dwelling with the Father. But not only that. Verse 3. He was God. 
He truly was God. This is three statements in a row that are escalating to make you see that he not only was in the beginning, not only was he with God, but he himself was God. It is a striking exclamation that a Jewish guy like John will say this. Not that the word of God and God are the same thing, but that Jesus Christ as the word is essentially God, Jesus is God, just as much as God as the Father is God. He is one with God, with the Father. Now, I know that some, like the Jehovah Witness, like to say, well, he was just a, a God in this text. But we, we know from grammar that this is impossible. When you have a, a particular grammatical construction... Like this, even if the article is not there, you still have to consider is that a definite declaration. This is God. This is not a God. It's, it's referring to God. Which means the word is God. The word was God. That's how we have to render it. Oswald Sanders once says, if Jesus is not God, then there is no Christianity. And we who worship him are nothing more than idolaters. If instead Jesus is God, those who say that he was just a man are blaspheming. That's the beginning of the gospel. The question of the gospel from the get-go is, who is Jesus? And the immediate answer to that question, who do you say that I am? Is that Christ is God. And the fact that we acknowledge him as God... On that verge, the eternal destiny of every soul that ever existed on the, the earth, in the entire universe. I know that in this uh, day and age, we deny the supernatural. We, however, must get past the idea of Jesus as a good teacher. He was more than a man. There, it's not just that we're saying that there was something divine about this Jesus. We are saying that if you don't recognize that Jesus is God, it will not be a true gospel. A confusion with the identity of Jesus will result in you not being able to have eternal life. That Jesus Christ from eternity past existed already with the Father. And that he decided to come down to save lost sinners... And we're not saying that he's like God, but he has the same nature. He is one with God. He is God. It's a sober truth here. And the most proper reaction, friends, is that we worship Jesus Christ. Yes. We worship him because he is God. And we must obey him in the words of scriptures, which are the revelation of that same person, Jesus Christ. But also look at the wonder of the Trinity. That Jesus is God. Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. There is one God in three different persons. You see that in the text. You have still distinct person in the fact that it says he was with God. Which means he and the Father are not. We have two persons. But at the same time it says he was God. And we know from the Old Testament there is one God. That is the wonder of the Trinity. But let us move on. Verse 2, to make sure you understand, John says, he, he doesn't say it, the word, which means the word hides a person there. 
And that person is Jesus Christ. Was with God in the beginning. Verse 3. We hear that this Jesus was actually the creator. All things were made through, through the word. Through Jesus. Everything ever existed. Without him, not one thing was made. Nothing exists that Christ did not made. So that when you read Psalm 33 verse 6. By the word of the Lord. Were the heavens made? You know that Jesus Christ was behind it. This is not fantasy, friends. This is reality. That there was never a time where Christ did not exist. He's eternal and He's God. And He's the source and creator of everything you see. The creative power to call the universe into being. Do you realize that? That Jesus Christ has, has given the galaxy their nature. And he sustains the word by the power of his words. All the planets through the voice of Christ. It is in Christ that we move and have our being. And now that same Christ, it is preached to you. Now that same Christ is coming that was in creation. But his goal is not to create another physical creation. His goal is to bring a new creation. To bring you spiritual life. And that brings us to our next point. Which is verses 14 to 18 of our text. Not only Jesus is God. But Jesus is also man. That word. Which is Christ. Now becomes embodied. In a man. A man who is. We learn both gracious and truthful. And that man is Jesus Christ. The journey that starts in verse 1. In the beginning was the word. Now culminates in verse 14. The word became flesh. There is a change in, 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 in the word. He enters into a new dimension. Flesh. Not in the understanding that sometimes Paul used in the epistles of something sinful. No. Human. He becomes a physical being. That is the wonder of Christmas. When we celebrate Christmas... If we can condense, and John MacArthur says this, if you condense all the truths of Christmas, it will be summarized in this, that God is with us. The greater truth of Christmas is, is, is the deity of Christ. More astonishing than a baby is that this baby is the omnipotent creator of the heaven and earth. Can you imagine? The transcendent God who creates everything now, Taking a human nature, becoming flesh and blood, taking on the, all the humility and the weakness, all that is essential to being a man and, a, and accept sin. Even having a human soul, he becomes incarnate. He becomes a human being. He doesn't simply appear to be a man. No, he takes the entire nature of manhood. Now, this does not imply any change in, 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 in God, it implies that he adds the humanity to that divinity. Two natures, one person, Jesus Christ. And what we learn there in verse 14, the second part, that he dwelt among us. God pitched his tent temporarily as a guest for a short time. Prior to Jesus going back to glory, he takes 
the human nature, all the temporal limitation of our human experience. Verse 18 makes this even stronger. It says, no one ever has ever seen God. I mean, God is invisible, right? You cannot see him. Our eyes are incapable of detecting God. Think of uh, ultraviolet rays. You cannot see them. And yet, if you look through a photograph, you, you, you know that those ultraviolet rays are still there present. Although you don't see them. You see, Jesus is that photograph. No one has ever seen God, but Jesus has shown God through becoming a man. And there you have in verse 18 that word begotten. Some translations say begotten son, more likely begotten God. And now there's so much we could say about this. Uh, pages and pages have been written. What I want you to see, this is repeated in verse 18 and in verse 14. Begotten means literally one of a kind. Now it does not mean that Jesus was created. Because as we saw, Jesus was God, existed. And that's why Jehovah Witness or even Muslims who deny and, and they think Deny the, the, the deity of Christ. They think that Jesus uh, was physically generated. That's what they mean. Like I have a son and I physically generated. And that's how they understand begotten. That's not the way begotten is used. First of all, if, if, the, if the translation is begotten God, it means that he's still God. But secondly, begotten means that he has no parallel. He has no equal. Christ is the only one of its kind or its class, uniquely divine as God's son. It doesn't imply that is inferior to the father. The two are equal. But it's more than uniqueness. There is a relationship to, between Jesus and the father that is express, uh, expressed here for us. He is the firstborn. And it doesn't exclude the fact that we, when we come to Christ by salvation, then we become part of that relationship. But he is unique in fellowship and relationship with the Father. As none of us are. And so that is the uniqueness of his divine sonship of Christ. And that begotten son, Jesus Christ, has declared the Father. No one has seen God, as we, we said. But Jesus has literally exegeted the Father. He has interpreted the Father for us. We cannot perceive by our senses. We cannot see, but Christ has manifested it through the incarnation. That is the mountaintop of the entire biblical revelation. He told us everything about the Father. And in fact, He is in the bosom of the Father, our text says. That bosom Points to the closest intimacy between them. He knows all the secrets of the Father. And he has revealed them to us. All the mysteries. He's close in affection with the Father. In that sense, bosom with the Father. But he's also close to the Father in authority. Do you see how what happened at the manger was crucial for our salvation? Our hope is that God has come to earth. God has come to earth to save our lost humanity. That actually God comes and becomes a man. Yes, God is invisible. But in Christ, God becomes incarnate. He becomes tangible. 
That's why we can ask, if you want to know God and what God looks like, you have to look at the Son, at Jesus Christ. Because he who sees me has seen the Father. This is astounding. That God became an actual man. Yes, Jesus is more than a man as we saw in the previous point. But he's no less than a man. And he's not part man or part God. But he's, uh, as the creed says, truly God. Truly man. He has all of the humanity, all of the divinity. United in one Undivided person, Jesus Christ. This is something that bug, mind-boggling for us. Because no other human being on earth has those two things coming together. An undivided person with distinct humanity and divinity. It is hard to grasp, I understand. And uh, yet it, it is a great comfort for us. Why? In this case, because Jesus sweats. Because Jesus hungered. Because Jesus thirsted, Jesus suffered, Jesus knew disappointment, Jesus knew temptation, except he, he never sinned, Jesus wept. Jesus is everything that you have gone through, but he's also God. And so that is the beauty of the humanity of Jesus. And then look at verse, the second part of verse 14 all the way to verse 17. Still in this humanity that we are dealing of the humanity of Christ. We see that in Christ, grace is joined with truth. We, verse 14, the second part, beheld his glory. And when he's saying we, he's saying about the disciples. That glory that the disciples saw at the transfiguration. Where Christ actually was showing that that one kind of glory as the only begotten. Once again, that word comes up from the Father. But there he gives you the comments and he says he was full of grace and truth. He was full of favor, loving forgiveness to give us salvation. To undeserved sinners like you and me. He was full of grace. That grace that the law could not give. But he's also full of truth. Which means you can't have one without the other. You must have grace and truth together like twins or slackling between two sides in a perfect equilibrium. Grace and truth. And verse 15, we'll see more next week as we go to the verse 19 on. Verse 15 speaks of the witness of John the Baptist who cries out and says, This is the one. This is, in this sense, he's the begotten. That he has priority over John the Baptist because he existed before John the Baptist. Unique before me. And in verse 16 and 17, we have received what? Grace upon grace. Grace abounding. When we come to Jesus Christ as believers. Even when you think that the, the reservoir of grace from the heart of Christ has been exhausted. That there's no more left. There is still more to come. Generous bounty of grace. In the salvation that he provides. But also he is the source of grace. In fact from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. So what John wants you to see here. Is that there is a shift in the 
history of the Bible here in the New Testament. He's starting to you the New Testament. He's saying the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And the law in that sense is those rigid demands and merciless justice, we could say, that had come and has been given a law that sadly we cannot keep. Israel could not keep, right? Transgressing, ultimately bringing judgment. Law that is not able to save. In that sense, John wants you to see that that, that came through Moses. But now... That, that we are going to a new and better covenant. From that old covenant with Sinai, with Moses. Now we come to this new, a higher and better covenant. The gospel is vastly superior. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is showing us the striking need that you and I have. That the, the law only points to our sin. And show us our unworthiness before the holy and perfect God. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Forgiveness. Now this doesn't contradict with the law. Because the law is still good as we know from other parts of the New Testament. It's the idea that you get your basics through the, the law. But then you come to the exuberant manifestation of the giving of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That law was remaining good, yes. But it was unable to save, unable to provide the knowledge of God. It brings the knowledge of your sin. Until finally, you realize that salvation is unearned. That, that, that has to come through the favor of God. That has to come through, ultimately, as we will celebrate in a few minutes, with the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And so in the Old Testament, if you wanted to look at God... You would die. Right? We hear that. In Mount Sinai, the thunders, the, 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 everyone in Israel was afraid to get into the, the mountain. Right? But now, now the gates is open through the fullness of grace that has come to you. That grace that saves you. By grace you are saved, not by your works, not by merits. But only by grace. It's like an avalanche that comes down from the mountain. And it, it overwhelms the true believer. Now this does not replace the holiness of God. Does not replace the law. Does not diminish the law of God as true. In fact, Jesus is both grace and truth. And the truth here is that there is a price for your sin. That grace is not some, oh, I'm just going to cover your sin up. Pretend like it didn't happen. No. I will take the justice. Christ himself bore your sins on the cross. And in a perfect balance. His entire life teaching. And ultimately what he did at the cross. He, he, he balanced the grace of God. By giving his life. Lovingly. But also by the truth by paying the just punishment for your sins, my sins. The fullness of grace's truth is both found in Christ. We might have met few gracious people in this life. We may have met partially truthful individuals here and there on the earth. But none, none has shown us the perfect harmony of grace and truth like Jesus Christ. 
And so to be like Christ is to have both. To be full of conviction and truth, but also full of grace, right? Firmness in truth, but also kindness in balance. And so let us, let us learn from this. And now let's move to the third response. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. But we, how do we, you know, we have described the magnificence of Christ. How do we respond to this? And now we go to verses 4 to 13. We see that Jesus is a Savior. The Savior. He is life giver. Savior. That word, Christ, that we saw in verse 1, came to a dark world. He, yes, he became flesh, but this world was dark. And sadly, this world rejects him. However, those who accept him, they become part of this new creation. This new Genesis 1, where you become born again. Look at the reception of the light. Verse 4, 6 to 9, 12 to 13. Let's start with verse 4. The same word that now shows his power in salvation. In him, verse 4 says, was life. Eternal life. That life that sin has stolen in the garden of Eden. Genesis 3 once again. Has now come back. This will be a major theme of the entire book of John. I cannot emphasize it enough. That eternal life. That transcended spiritual life. John repeats it 36 times in his gospel. That Jesus Christ is the source of true Spiritual, eternal life. He was the light of men. To all mankind, he was our ultimate hope. Verse 6 to 9, however, says, John the Baptist, he was a sent man from God. He was, John, the, 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 the one who wrote this gospel, was a disciple of John the Baptist. And we will see next week why this is important. He was sent as a witness to Testify that Jesus is the Son of God. That was the, the whole mission of, of, of to be a forerunner of the coming light, which is Christ. Jesus is the light of the world. And so John the Baptist needed to awake the people to their need of this light so that all men may believe, trust in that light. But John was not the light, he was just pointing. He was a signpost. We'll see a lots of signposts in the coming weeks. Between now and chapter 13 of John. But the true light was Jesus Christ. First John repeats this again. His letter, 1 John 2 verse 8 says, The darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. True light means genuine light. Not a facsimile light. And, and that light can grant true enlightening. To the soul of man. And that light it says. It's impendingly coming into the world. Verse 12. However. There's, a, there's that hope. Despite the darkness in this world. Because the, the light is coming down from heaven. Christ is becoming incarnate. Many rejects him as we will see. But as many as received him. He gave them the right to become children of God. That receiving means to receive and taking into fellowship. It is uh, intimate language right there. It implies that you agree or approve and accept the person of Jesus Christ. And 
accepting a gift, as we know, is more than a mental, yes, okay, he gave me a gift, and now the gift is saying, staying on my desk. I don't even open it. Our reception of the gift demonstrates a confidence in that gift being a real and trustworthy gift, making it part of your possession, making it part of everything that you are. You see that? It's not like, you know, I received Christ in, uh, uh, you know, 20 years from now and he's a foreigner. We are in fellowship with, with one another. This is a profound language that happens as salvation. And then we, we hear from our text, verse 12, again, he gave them the right to become children of God. He gave you the capability to, or privilege, as a right to become a member of the family of God. And what you notice there, first of all, is that we are not all children of God by birth or by nature. You become one by believing in this Christ, by receiving him. Those who believe in his name, our text says. Believing is receiving. Believing means to adhere and trust and rely on Jesus Christ, as we saw, as both man and God and now Savior. Which means you now plead a honest allegiance to him for all of your life. You believe that he is who he claimed to be and that he is your Savior and he rescues you from this dark world. The hope of the gospel shines in this night like a star. That Jesus as the light of the world. He has created you. He has created your body. He has given you breath. But now you come to him and he recreates you. He makes you into a new man and woman. By faith in who he is. But it happens as you recognize him for who he is. You recognize Jesus Christ as God incarnate. You receive him by believing in him. And it is by faith in this Christ. And in what he has done to you ultimately at the cross. That you are saved. You become adopted in the family of God. You receive all the benefits and privileges of being his child. This is more than mental acceptance. This is a willingness to let the true light of God shine in all the closets and secrets of your life. It is a willingness to give up control of your life. And also it is something that doesn't come from you. It comes from the enlightenment that God gives to your soul through the Holy Spirit. As he illumines your dark mind. Notice verse 13. The beauty of verse 13. Those who believe now. John clarifies as being born of God. John wants you to see that the origin of this salvation, the, the fact that you have this new birth, you are born again. He doesn't go straight to the source and says of God. He first tells you where it doesn't come, right? He says he wants to rule out any other option, any other claim that you may have to this birth. It says neither of blood. I know that the Jewish people had a great pride in their race. In the fact of being physically born in, in, in a Jewish uh, community. And therefore that made you somehow, you know, better. No. You don't receive this birth from your parents. 
You don't get born again just because you are born in a Christian family. Isn't that a denial of any, you know, position I think about Presbyterians in particular who like to include their children into the new covenant? No. You don't get into this through family bloodlines, friends. The new birth comes to you only and, and, and it gives you access to the, the, the family of God through the new birth, through, through God's Holy Spirit. We must not presume to be part of the covenant of God without this new birth, to be born again. But then look at the second one. Not of the, first of all, as we saw, neither of blood, but look at the second. Neither of the will of the flesh. Or the translation says, by human desire. This is not something you receive carnally by your own nature, through your own works. That will not give you the new birth. Thirdly, it is not even of the will of man. It is not even... Through your own will or desire. Now that I ruled out all the options, I tell you, those are born of God. It is God, the origin, the birthright that comes only from Him. That spiritual rebirth, you come and you're born again. It comes from that begotten God. I am begotten. I am born again because of the begotten. Famous uh, preacher Richard Baxter one says, seeing we are born God's enemies, that's what we are by nature, we are God's enemies, we must be newborn His sons. That implies that human initiative at salvation is completely ruled out here. There needs to be a change of nature from the darkness to being born again. And it's something that is not biological, that doesn't come through my parents it doesn't come through my wish. It doesn't come through my works or my merits. We are all children of God, you hear people say, right? That's false. I believed and I became, out of my own free will, I became a believer. No, 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 no. Not by the will of man. I be, I, I'm a Christian because of my parents. I mean, obviously, I, mean, I grew up Christian. No, 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 friends. No, no, this has to happen in your heart, this regeneration. It has to be something personal, and it's not even through your own good works. Anything you do in the flesh, it is not even through your own efforts. You remain helpless unless the Holy Spirit gives you a new birth. He gets the credit, not you. None other than the work of God. But then look, in fact, at what happens to the majority Verse 5, verse 11 and 10, the rejection of darkness. That's the, the crude reality of this. The Jewish people in particular. The light had come to them through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the, the, the God incarnate. But that, that light contrasts with the darkness. The darkness there in John, throughout John, stands for evil, sin, death. In other words, Jesus is here like... The illuminator who shines or blazes out his light in the darkness. In a world that because of the fall, because of sin is dark. is spiritually dark, right? But then we hear the darkness did not receive it or comprehend it. Now there's two ways you can translate that word 
over there in verse 5. You can either translate it as pointing to the fact that darkness, in the sense of separation from God, this world separated from God, either the darkness that does not understand the light, or the darkness does not win over the light. These two ways. Either darkness does not succeed in overcoming the light. And that, if you have a King James, that's how it is uh, talked about. is overpowering or vanquishing, of extinguishing of the light. The, the, the darkness has not been able to put out the light. Or the second sense, which is most translation, which I feel is more in tune with the following verses. Verse uh, 10 in particular, we see. It's... The darkness is unreceptive of the light, is unable to understand, comprehend it, mentally perceiving it. It's almost as if, yeah, it didn't even bother to realize that the light is shining right in front of your eyes. You are unable, you're still in the dark. And verse 10, it says that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through this light. You see there that uh, the entire world owns the, its existence from Jesus. So you would expect that this world that has been created by Jesus will welcome his creator, right? You will expect that if light comes and shines in this dark world, then we rejoice. No, instead, but verse 10 says, he did not know him. He did not know him. And that knowledge points once again to that saving knowledge, to the acknowledgement or the not even having a flash of awareness that the delight is right in front of you. You don't even notice it. The world at large is rejecting Christ still today. Verse 11 says that Jesus came to his own. We belong to, to Christ as our creator. We are his creatures. Now there's a difference there between the first own and the second own. So you could translate it, he came to his own things, but his own people did not receive him. So he came on earth, he has a right of possession upon the earth, but then the second own, which is his own people, Israel, they profess to be God's people at this time as John is writing. But what did Israel do? Israel put their Savior on the cross. The creator of heaven and earth. Who became man. Inexcusably they reject him. They did not receive him. Only a few. Received Christ's message. We, we, we know from the whole gospel. Later we'll see the rejection. So if Christ is so great. As we saw he's man. He's God. Then you can see why sin is so exceedingly sinful. In light of this great Christ. Right? It is naive to think that mankind is eagerly seeking God. We hear of churches that are seeker sensitive. Right? Oh, there's people out there that are seeking God. Like, no, the, the text here says that they reject Him. They are in active rebellion against God. And that, friends, is our default nature. That's how we come into this world. Rebelling against God. Quenching that light, the world rejects Christ in drove, and that should not surprise us. Even professing Christians are no guarantee 
I mean, those Jewish people rejected Christ, even though they claimed to worship the living God. Right? That, that shining light in the darkness takes away, however, any excuse that man may have for ignorance. And that is the, the story of the gospel as it will unfold in coming weeks, as we shall see in John. Even religious people who claim to represent God in the Bible, the Jews, or I think about my own upbringing in Italy with Roman Catholicism, or I think about many, many Protestants who today claim to believe in Jesus, but they have lost the gospel, right? But they could not quench their light. Isn't this the, the slogan of the Protestant Reformation that after all the darkness, light came, right? And that darkness has not been able to quench it. But there's more sobering aspect to this aspect of the rejection, friends, that I want you to catch. That God does not allow himself to be understood, comprehended by people who remain in darkness. You gotta leave darkness to come to the light. That even with people like the Jewish people, they had all this religious practice. They were his own called people, but they rejected the very one that could give them light. Friends, if you reject Christ, then you have no excuses. If you choose darkness over light, that, that light shines and now forces you to distinguish between darkness and light. It forces you to identify what dark is. And then we must make a decision not only about who Jesus is, but what, to, what am I going to do with this Jesus? You either reject him, and you reject him by remaining in the darkness of sin. That's how you reject him. Or you turn away from darkness. You repent, and you allow the light to shine into your life. And so, friend, may this be true of you this morning. Remove as God removes your spiritual blindness and shows you your sin, do not stumble in darkness. Your only hope this morning, friends, is in this Jesus Christ. Who brings about that absolute transformation of giving you a new birth. Of making you born again. You could not see without Him giving you that light. And so what do we conclude from this Dense 18 verses of introduction to the Gospel of John. We could spend an entire day to having just scratched the surface of this 18 verses. The beauty of the fact that Jesus is God. That God in Jesus has come to earth. Is the promise being fulfilled in this new Testament, this Gospel of John, the response that you and I have to have once we have been exposed to this light, once we have been exposed to this Jesus, is to bow down in worship to Jesus as your Creator, your Savior, and your only rep human representative before God. He had to be perfectly man to be able to represent you before God. He had to be fully God in order to represent you before God. But also, he had to pay the sin that you and I have committed, that brought him, and the judgment that you and I deserve. He had to 
pay it at the cross. Friends, one day you will see this Christ that I talked to you about. You will see him face to face. This is not just an imaginary talk. We are talking about a physical being, Jesus Christ, who is now in heaven, exalted with a glorified body. And one day you and I will see him face to face. He is the perfect man. And the perfect reaction, the proper reaction for you and I is to believe in this Christ. The fact that this Christ is God and man should change everything. However, as we heard from the words of our text, this world rejects this message. Rejects Christ. Don't be surprised. That the world wants to remain in darkness. But the beauty of the, the gospel is that through the Holy Spirit, you can be born again. You can have a new birth. But it does not depend on any, anything you did. It does not en depend in anything in you. It doesn't depend even in your background or your skill or your pedigree of your family's history. It is purely entirely from God. And through His grace, which has been lavish, and He is willing to give it to you. To extend His grace to unworthy sinners. Yes, for your sin, He paid and died and He rose again. My hope for everyone who is listening this morning is that the light that shone today in the preached word, that word that created the world, that, he, that the same word will come again even in our pews this morning and recreate people. Because that's what happens when people come to Christ. That conversion, it's, it's a new creation, it's, it's the greatest miracle ever. My hope is that that light may be received and expand and shine even beyond our gathering this morning to bring eternal life. As the old hymn said, thou art the everlasting word, the father's only son. God manifestly seen and heard and heaven's beloved one worthy, O Lamb of God, art thou that every knee to thee should bow. In thee most perfectly express the father's glories shine. Of the full deity possessed, eternally divine. True image of the infinite, whose essence is concealed. Brightness of uncreated light, the heart of God revealed. But the high mystery of thy name, the hymn continues. An angel grasp transcend, the father only glorious claim. The son can comprehend. Throughout the universe of bliss, the center thou and son. The eternal theme of praise of this to heaven's beloved one. Let us pray.